The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febctoday.org. One of the biggest things that's stuck out to me this year is the way that the body of Christ has surrounded me, my daughter Aya, and even Nabil's family during this time. On this edition of First Person, our final program of the year, we'll hear just a few highlights. Welcome, I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll be hearing from Michelle Qureshi, Larnell Harris, David McCullough, and the late Dr. Billy Graham. As we mark the end of 2018, I once again want to thank you for listening and for your support of the Far East Broadcasting Company, who makes this program possible. Through FEBC programs on radio and online, the gospel has been heard by millions. Many have placed their faith in Christ and have been taught the Word of God. Learn more about this powerful media ministry at febc.org. Well, it's always hard to choose just a few highlights of the year almost ended, but we have chosen four people to hear from again. Later, you'll hear from Michelle, the widow of the late apologist Nabil Qureshi. We'll re-air a clip of our conversation with historian David McCullough. And you'll hear the voice of the late Dr. Billy Graham. But we begin with a few moments featuring singer Larnell Harris, who talked about his parents and the great influence they had on him. They really did. And uh, through my mom's prayers and my dad's uh, decision to allow those prayers to affect his life, uh, you know, it's a story of victory. Dad had some issues. I got to tell you, you know, that was all there is to it. Hmm. And uh, and she being a Pentecostal holiness lady, uh, wore that white dress with them big buttons run down the front. <laughs> she, was, she, was a prayer, she was a prayer warrior. She knew how to pray, was, didn't she? And she knew how to do it, boy. I can't, she could get it done. And I was a little kid, you know, a little boy, you know, five, six years old. I don't know. Something was something in that neighborhood. I would sit at her knee at night as she would pray for him. And, and I got to tell you, even I knew that he didn't have a chance. There was just not a chance in the world. And he, he, he finally, you know, uh, through, uh, through her prayers and, again, through his willingness to allow Christ into his heart, broke a cycle that had started, you know, and I'm not going to tell you everything. You have to read yeah, the book. You, to, to it's an there. amazing story in the book, but yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say this. There, they came a, a distinct turning point in your father's life because of your mother's prayers, it, it came after even some jail time, but le- how, yeah. old, how old were you when your dad made that turn? You know, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I was old enough to know he did it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? All right. Uh, 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 because he, he had that, that terrible time for all of us, you know, uh, uh, that jail time uh, uh, was, was tough for all of us. I, I was old enough to know that, okay? Uh, but uh, I have to say this. I noticed, even as a kid, this something different. <laughs> you know, it was, it was it was just different. He had be, he had become, and this is after some time. Um, he had become uh, a man proud. Uh, he um, uh, became the, the the spiritual head of our family. He he uh, he went on to be a, a, a deacon in our church. And I got to tell you, uh, 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 this little boy. Yeah, really needed to see that, yeah. and in terms of 
if you know, we like to pick heroes in ter- in terms of picking heroes, he and mom are my heroes. Yeah, you developed a, a deep respect for your dad. I really did, and uh, and I, I I I I respected him all along. I guess you know because everything was was felt fairly normal. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But uh, boy, when that happened, and and again, I'm looking back on this. So I know a whole lot more, know sure. a whole lot more things to notice than I did then. I can tell you this, things were different, and yeah. they were. That's amazing. Good. That's amazing. So did you grow up in church, and did you start singing in church? I did. I, I, uh, uh, I grew up in church. My mom made certain of that. I mean, it was, it <laughs> you, was a no-brainer. No <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she'd get in your face about it. You know, listen, boy, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. You know, here. <laughs> And I have to tell you, she had tried it a couple of times, so I knew better than to book that. Uh, but I, I started singing when I met a lady named Miss Georgia Dunahigh. Miss Georgia Dunahigh. She taught piano lessons to every kid in town, whether they wanted them or not. I, I, I really didn't want to do that, but my mom wanted me to do it, and you know what? Uh, she normally got her way. Mm-hmm. So I started taking piano lessons. And Miss Georgie found out I could sing a tune. Now, I'm a boy soprano. I was a boy soprano. I knew it. I sang at home all the time. But I didn't let anybody hear that. You know, the, uh, and when they did, the ladies, uh, for instance, in the church choir would just cry when they'd hear me yeah, sing. Yeah, I bet you were their stuff. darling, weren't you? <laughs> I was their darling. But the kids my own age, man, they just laughed and throw st- and uh-huh. threw stuff. You know, that, that wasn't easy. But I did my first concert with Miss Georgie playing the piano when I was nine years old. As in this uh, Texas, what I call, I don't even know what, what, what they are, but it was looked like, I call it a Texas bow tie, you know, with the, those little strings hanging down the yep, side. Yep. And I'm standing there and I'm a, singing songs. A bolo tie, songs. sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm singing songs like uh, uh, How Great Thou Art and the Lord's Prayer, Miss Georgie playing. And, and I can remember uh, uh, crying, you know, tears coming to my eyes as, as I sang these things. Hmm. And I really didn't understand all of that. I, that was all, that was all uh, very, very, very new. But um, that's when I started singing. Miss Georgie, you know, mentors can get on your last nerve because they don't quit. They, they, they just don't stop. So she went to my mom uh, one time and said, Ida Mae, you should not let Larnell play football or baseball or any sports in the dust. Well, what fun because, is that? Uh, yeah, you know, hey, who, who needs to do that? Yeah, because the dust will hurt his voice. Oh. So, But I got to tell you, now that I've gotten older and understand what God was doing as he placed these people in my life, I hope every town has a Miss Georgie. Larnell Harris. Next on our First Person Year in Review, we reach into the archive for an interview with renowned historian David McCullough on the topic of the life of John Adams. Uh, You can't tell the story of John Adams without talking about Abigail, his wonderful wife. Uh, You call it a great love story. Well, it is. It's one of the great love stories in American history, maybe the greatest, and it's all true. And it's all documented. It's all in the letters that they wrote to each other over years and years of their lives. They were separated because of his service to the country for a, a little over 10 years. And it was, it was punishing for them. It was, it was very painful uh, because they were devoted to each other. But we are the beneficiaries because we have the letters, mm-hmm. over a thousand letters between John and Abigail Adams. Wow. And neither one was capable of writing a dull letter or a short one. <laughs> I have uh, had the thrill, really, the adventure, maybe I'd be better to say, of, of exploring their time, of 
getting inside the, the life of that time through their eyes and a pen. And she could hold her own with any of the, mo- of the outstanding thinkers of the day. Mm-hmm. She was very bright, very well read. She was um, profoundly religious, profoundly patriotic, uh, a strong and immensely admirable woman. Not always an easy woman to get along with, mm-hmm. but she was, he said before they were married that what I need is ballast. And she certainly was his ballast, and she was his most trusted advisor. He did not, however, always take her advice. And the most uh, important example of that is that she was full ready to go with war, to war with France. Mm-hmm. I think she would have joined up and marched off herself if she could. She have. would have served under Hamilton, huh? Yeah, yeah well, anybody. <laughs> I mean, she was so. She didn't trust Hamilton. She but, was so affronted, so yeah. angry uh, by the, at the treatment of the French uh, to our ships, to our sailors, mm-hmm. to our. Uh, to our dignity as a nation. Her sense of right and wrong, her feeling, for example, that all the troubles that they were they were experiencing during the war, uh, pestilence sweeping through the t- towns of New England, uh, epidemic dysentery, smallpox, uh, the uh, war that was at her doorstep. When she writes to uh, her husband who's in Philadelphia, I wonder if this, if this, if this is not punishment uh, our punishment for the sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tells him at one point when he's uh, sort of down uh, and and uncertain, I would not have you, nor would you wish to be a mere spectator. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions to correspond with them. Mm. What a banner to march under oh, that. Boy, I, yeah. I guess so. I, I was deeply impressed by the letters, which you quote liberally in your book, too, and thank you for giving us that record of what is there. I was deeply impressed with her religious conviction, her faith, which seemed very real. It wasn't just a Puritan kind of show. It, it was very deeply felt. Oh, her. absolutely. And um, there's several things about that. I, I hope that one of the things I've accomplished with the book that is different from some of what has been written about them before is is to, to convey the degree to which uh, their religious belief and faith was central to their, to their character mm-hmm. and to how they conducted their lives. Um, In all the interviews that you've done uh, about this book, uh, and there have been a number of them, um, is there something that has been generally overlooked? Yes, exactly what you've been talking about, the the role of of his religious faith, the role of religion uh, in their lives, both private and public. You see, to me, the the end of the book is in many ways... truly the culmination because it's it's the end of the book is about when he comes home after the presidency for 25 years he never goes anywhere mm-hmm. and then you begin the inward journey mm-hmm. and he says uh, taking up the lines of St. Paul I will I promise to rejoice evermore yes. if I can I was so moved by it's, that and it's the if I can yeah. and truly at the end he suffered everything he suffered the loss of the people he loves most he's lost his teeth he's lost his health and yet the love of life, the rejoicing of his heart over the miracle of life in the world is simply spectacular. And what he writes, where the, that paragraph that I use, I hope you remember where he talks about, he even finds a thrill in commas and yes. periods, yes. and it takes him in, and he says he wants to get down on his knees and thank God 
for this marvelous, this magnificent whole, I think he calls it. In the last page of your book, you say this. He had reduced uh, his motto, his fundamental creed, to a single sentence. He who loves the workman and his work and does what he can to preserve and improve it shall be accepted of him. Very powerful. Indeed. Very powerful. David McCullough, thank you so much. Mr. Shepard, I thank you very much. Coming up, more of our year in highlights here in first person. We'll hear from Dr. Billy Graham and Michelle Qureshi next. Listening to your station is my first priority when I get home. Sometimes I even listen twice. First on the radio and then through the internet. Thank you for all your hard work. The Far East Broadcasting Company is dedicated to presenting Christ to the world through radio and new media, and we receive millions of responses every year from grateful listeners. To learn more, visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. That's firstpersoninterview.com to learn more about FEBC. We'll hear from Dr. Billy Graham in a few moments, but first, a clip of our conversation with Michelle Qureshi, the young widow of apologist Nabil Qureshi. One of the biggest things that's stuck out to me this year is the way that the body of Christ has surrounded me and my daughter Aya and even Nabil's family during this time, even remotely, even if it's not... I mean, for Aya and me, it's it's been anything from childcare to bringing meals to praying with us, fellowshipping with us, checking in to see how we're doing, and this this is still going on. It's it's been a little over a year. It's still going on, and I never in my wildest dreams that I imagined that I would see something quite like the the outpouring that I see. Hmm. And it's been the, the the biggest, the number one reason why I've stayed in Houston. Nabil and I moved to Houston from Oxford, England, <laughs> um, solely, solely because he got the diagnosis, solely so that he could get treatment at MD Anderson. Mm-hmm. And my family is in North Carolina, my parents, and you know, the kind of default of a young widow is to go back with the parents. My parents were all ready to take me in and make sure we were taken care of. But when they came here right after the, right after Nabil passed, right after all the um, funeral arrangements and burial, they came and my dad, but my mom stayed for two and a half weeks. My dad was here for four weeks and they saw firsthand the kind of community that we have here in Houston. Wonderful. Then they said, not only do we think this is absolutely the best place for you to stay, Michelle, but we need to change churches. (laughs) (laughs) Because seeing this, seeing what you have, seeing the possibility of what church can look like, we we need to change churches. So they did. They went back and they actually reconnected with some people that we had been been in a homeschool group with growing up and... Um, just all, as soon as they walked in the doors, it was like, oh, you know, how are you guys doing? We know what happened, and we're praying for you, and here's some small groups you can join. And here's oh, like, it's just a, a kind of a night and day from where they had been before. So kind of wild that even just spending some time with, with what God has provided here uh, was even a blessing to my parents in terms of next step in their life. Yeah. 
Part of Nabil's testimony was his relationship with his parents, uh, coming from an Islamic background, and his parents uh, were not believers. How how has all of this, uh, watching all this, affected them? Well, Nabil's parents lived with us during his last few months of life. He was hospitalized most of that time, and so they were they, they came from their home in Maryland and stayed with us here in Houston so they could be with him every day while he was hospitalized. And then they also saw this saw the community that I was referring to. And it it impacted them in a in a profound way. So in in the Muslim mindset, especially those coming from so Nabil's parents came over from Pakistan. And in in the mindset of those coming over from from a you know Muslim country, a lot of times they'll view Christianity as uh, that that what you see in society and culture is what Christianity is, oh, yeah. so what you see on TV or mm-hmm. what you see on the beaches or what you see. And, and Nabil has spoken about spoke about this many times. And so I think within their minds, that was kind of the mindset that they had, the, the framework that they had to work with about what Christianity was. And it was so interesting for the time that they were here with us, what they saw of our community pouring into Aya, pouring into me, pouring into Nabil, and then pouring into them, especially this concept of giving without any expectation of receiving. Because again, culturally speaking, in the in the Pakistani Muslim mindset, if you receive a gift, you're already thinking, "How can I reciprocate?" Mm-hmm. Because that's my duty, that's my obligation. And so, for them to receive way more than they could ever give back, in the beginning, they first were trying to find the ways to give back to every single person that was giving, but it, it was. <laughs> So it was too much. It was overwhelming, for them huh? To ever give, <laughs> yeah, it was too much for them to ever give back. It was overwhelming, but in a good way. And now I see that their perception, they even made connections. They made friendships. They started, they were invited over to Christian's homes for meals while they were here. And that has opened up a whole new window of appreciation for Christians. Now, they're still devoted Muslims, but they are in a position of seeing Christianity more for what it truly is. Michelle Qureshi, whose young husband Nabil died much too early in our eyes. Finally, in our first person year in review from a 20-year-old conversation with Dr. Billy Graham. But let me take you back to the early years growing up on the farm uh, in North Carolina. And then you must have been a teenager when Dr. Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte and preached, and that impacted your life greatly because you accepted Christ there. What Do you remember what the message was, what he preached that night? No, not that particular night, but he, he preached something I had never heard about before, and that was the second coming of Christ, and that intrigued me. He talked about uh, Armageddon. He talked about uh, the various things that we know so well about prophecy. And I'd never heard such preaching. We went to a very small associate reform Presbyterian church, and our minister didn't uh, talk along those lines. He was a post millennialist and so forth. So Dr. Ham 
was used of God to speak mm. to my heart. And one night, I, I remember that I was under deep conviction of sin. I was not a great sinner in the sense that I went out and did terrible things. But uh, I was a sinner by birth. In sin did my mother conceive me. And it was that type of conviction. And uh, I knew that I needed Christ. There was a void in my life. I understand that you tried to avoid becoming convicted. You and Grady, your good friend from those childhood days, you actually volunteered for the choir so you wouldn't have to, to look at Dr. Ham. Uh, that's right, <laughs> because he would always point his finger right out in the audience and seem to uh, land it right to, on me from time to time. And I went up in the choir and sat down beside a young fellow by the name of Grady Wilson. He was up there. I don't know whether that was for the same reason, but that's where he was. He had a brother by the name of T.W., and T.W. was a little bit uh, hesitant that time about uh, spiritual things in comparison to Grady. In one way, it's hard for us to imagine that Billy Graham was ever a a door-to-door, fuller-brush salesman, but that is indeed what you did for what, a summer or more? A summer, and then uh, we extended a little bit beyond wherever we could find somebody that was interested. Uh-huh. Now, was uh, was Grady mixed up in that as well? Grady and T.W. both. Oh, all right. I had been invited to by the Fuller Brush people mm-hmm. uh, to work for them that summer, but I didn't want to go out alone in South Carolina where we were supposed to go, so I called the two friends that I'd met at uh, the ham meeting, T.W. and Grady, if they would be interested. They finally said yes, and so they went with me, and we had a wonderful summer. Uh, We would uh, pray and read the Bible and uh, witness as best we could and uh, try to find a pretty girl to date. (laughs) (laughs) And make money, of course, uh, as young men. Well, we didn't make much money (laughs) because in those days, uh, I think uh, I averaged maybe $50 a week. Hmm. I understand uh, from reading your autobiography that you feel like you learned a lot about prayer as a door-to-door salesman. I did. I prayed before every sales pitch that I made because sometimes there'd be a woman on the second floor who would throw down a a bucket of water on us. She didn't like salesmen coming to her. (laughs) Did that really happen? That really happened. (laughs) And then we would have some that uh, would owe us money at the end of the week when we took the brushes back to them and They refused to pay, Mm. so we had things to pray about, and uh, God tested our faith in those days. Dr. Billy Graham, who died in February of 2018, our interview courtesy of Moody Radio in Chicago. You've been listening to just a few of the many first-person conversations we've featured this past year in the program. Of course, all of the complete interviews are available online at firstpersoninterview.com. You can browse the archive, and we'll highlight the links to each of the interviews you've heard today. First Person would not be possible without the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company, who celebrates the work of God in people's lives. Please take a moment here at year-end to thank FEBC, not only for First Person, but more importantly, for faithfully carrying the gospel into many countries. Learn more by visiting febc.org. FEBC, until all have heard. For the schedule of what's coming up as we embark on a new year, please join us at firstpersoninterview.com and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Happy New Year from all of us, and join us again next time for First Person. Mm-hmm.